This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 96, April 25, 1985. Today we are going to discuss South Africa because Otto Scott's new book, The Other End of the Lifeboat, has been published. It is available for 18.95 postpaid from Ross House Books, P.O. Box. 67, Balacito, California, 95251. Anato is here, and we shall be discussing the subject of South Africa. Before we do, let me say it's a very timely book and a very timely day for the discussion of this, because the great hypocrisy of our time has to do with South Africa. The whole world acts as though somehow South Africa has contracted a form of leprosy, that it is guilty of a special kind of sin of which the other nations are exempt, and we see all kinds of monstrous hypocrisy on all sides. For example, just the other day the news uh, featured students protesting any aid to the freedom fighters in Nicaragua, saying the U.S. cannot police the world. At the same time, these students were ready to change hats and then demonstrate against South Africa and insist that we do more than police South Africa. We have some minor evils in South Africa and monstrous ones in the Soviet Union and a very, very hypocritical attitude uh, prevails. Uh, with that brief introduction, Otto, would you like to begin by saying something about what you cover in your book? There it's awfully difficult, I think, to summarize in a relatively short period all the points that one covers in a full-length book. There are several themes that struck me when I first began to look at South Africa. Uh, the, in the first place, of course, my interest was drawn toward the area because I had finished the study of the abolitionists and especially of the lunatic fringe of the abolitionist movement here in the United States. Uh, as we know, the abolitionist fervor finally uh, set off the Civil War, which is not to say that mistakes weren't made in the South by Southerners. Their response to the abolitionists was one of pure indignation, they never really mounted an intellectual analysis of the abolitionist argument, and therefore they lost the intellectual war or the propaganda war. But the uh, overriding result of the abolitionists was the deaths of somewhere between 500,000 and a million men, which was an enormous casualty list for a nation of 40 million people. That tragedy, the tragedy of the Civil War, still haunts the United States, and in large measure, I think, because it's never really been properly analyzed and dissected, we haven't learned the lessons of the Civil War to this day, because our school teachers and the victors wrote about it uh, as a very as a triumph of virtue, because it ended slavery. Now, of course, we know that slavery was ended everywhere else with a stroke of the pen because it was a political and legal situation. And to be the only country in the world that resorted to uh, a fratricidal war in order to accomplish something that was accomplished everywhere else very peacefully is hardly something, I think, to boast about. But after I finished that particular study and looked around the situation of South Africa hit me in the face. Here, the West, and particularly the United States, the English-speaking world, was in the business of 
acting as the abolitionists had acted and placing the Afrikaner or the white people in South Africa in the position of the white southern slave owner as a pariah, as an immoral person, as, as a sinner uh, who had to be brought to virtue by force at once. And, of course, this adds up to a repetition of the tragedy of the 1860s in the United States. Well, that parallel drew me. And then, of course, a second consideration came into my mind, and that was, what does that mean to us? If all these angels managed to bring their forced virtue onto the South African scene, what does it mean to the American people and to the United States? Yes, and that, of course, explains your title, The Other End of the Lifeboat. Uh, as you point out so very tellingly, the United States and the Soviet Union are in this together. We are together the target of a massive assault by world Marxism. And if South Africa goes with all its strategic minerals on which we are so dependent, then we too will be quickly rendered helpless. So, uh, by attacking South Africa, we are, in effect, committing suicide, are we not? That's exactly the situation. The, the way that the Soviets have managed to enlist the intellectuals of the United States into doing their work for them is one of the most remarkable phenomenons in all history. Time and again, American allies have been first abused and then abandoned by the Americans to the benefit of the Soviet Union. When we embargoed Chiang Kai-shek because we said his government was corrupt, and that legend, by the way, is still going on. Somebody has just written a book about the Sung family in which he describes them as a Chinese mafia. Uh, when we were persuaded to abandon the nationalist government of China, the beneficiary was the world communist movement. Mao Zedong could not have won without our help. The same thing was true in Cuba and Castro. The same thing was true in Vietnam. The same thing is now true in Nicaragua and in South Africa, at the Philippines, South Korea, Chile, and all the other areas that are now under uh, great critical attack. We have this strange phenomenon that the Soviet ambassador in the UN attacks American allies and our media and intellectuals attack the same allies. I don't think uh, there has ever been anything like this anywhere. No, we are suicidal in a particular way, masochistic. We exult when somebody calls attention to our evils, uh, real or imagined. And uh, we're trying to prove how righteous we are with a hypocritical virtue of uh, attacking South Africa. Uh, at one time you said that uh, the picture of South Africa we get today in the press is comparable to a picture of American uh, uh, attitudes towards blacks in the United States in the 40s and early 50s. Would you like to comment on that? Well, yes. The black people in the United States are in a really unusual situation that uh, we all know the backdrop and the backdrop is not good. We can thank uh, the British for leaving us in this situation. The British brought the black slaves to the United States as they transported black slaves to the West Indies and as they transported blacks and Hindus to other parts of the British Empire. It was one of the uh, patterns of the empire to import cheap labor. 
Well, the blacks that were imported into the West Indies uh, had to were put to work in the sugar industry. And because in places like Trinidad there was only 15% whites and 85% blacks, it was necessary for the English in the West Indies to teach the black slaves various skills. They became clerks and bookkeepers, uh, brokers, uh, middlemen. They had to perform all the work that involves the interstices and the uh, inter infrastructure of the whole great sugar industry. So over a period of 300 years, the blacks of the West Indies became uh, acculturated, so to speak. Thomas Sowell, a black historian, has written very well about this, so that even today the blacks from the West Indies, from Jamaica and places like that, speak very good English and are highly skilled and entrepreneurial-minded, so that when they come to the United States, they immediately went into business and they become quite successful. And Sowell says their success in the United States has nothing to do with their color or their uh, lack of being white. It speaks for itself. On the other hand, the blacks in the United States were confined more or less to the plantations of the South. So they worked either in the fields or they worked as house servants. And in both instances, they were denied an education. When emancipation came along at the end of the Civil War, we had a black population that had lost its roots, that had lost knowledge of its own original language and origin, and that had very little skill. Uh, they had a mulatto minority that was descended from intermarriage that had been freed, and that constituted the aristocracy of the black minority. However, the alternative for the black people in the United States uh, simply didn't exist. They had to integrate into the major culture because there was no place else to go. Now, the blacks in Africa are, of course, in a much different position. They still have their native nations. These are not simply cultures. They're nations. They're uh, groups of people who have languages of their own, who have customs of their own. And these customs and languages vary, and their physical types vary. The Bantu races, which uh, constitute the blacks in South Africa, are different from uh, some of the others. And a black man in South Africa does not have the... Uh, he's not faced with the need to integrate with the white population because he has a culture and a nation of his own. He has his own language. Now, when a man has his own language, his own history, his own associates, his own social structure, it's impossible really to put him down because he isn't part of yours. He can always feel proud in his own right, and therefore the blacks, black minority of South Africa does not look at the white minority of South Africa in the same way that the black minority in the United States looks at the white majority. Uh, there's also the fact that the black people, the black nations of South Africa, do not particularly get along with one another. We could compare it to Greeks and Irishmen, uh, Turks and Greeks. They may have the same skin color, but that doesn't make them friends. Now, here in the United States, there's a sort of a floating feeling amongst all people of color that they're all in the same camp. <coughs> That's not true in South Africa. So that to transpose the American situation onto the South African scene is a form of ignorance. Yes, uh, that's a very good point, because the American media, the intellectuals and the college students, assume that the situation in South Africa is black versus white, whereas in reality there is, ex unless it's among Marxists, no hostility against the whites. The hostility is between one black culture and another to the point that when they set up these homelands, they cannot even have the uh, boundaries uh, touch one another because it will lead to very serious trouble 
due to the hostility of one black group to another? Well, yes, because the wars between the black tribes or the black nations or whatever you want to call them have been constant as long as we know. They were in existence. They were fighting with one another. They were warring before the white man arrived. They had only stopped those wars when the white man was in control and acted as a sort of superpower. Uh, one of the uh, now discredited aspects of the colonial period was the fact that the white man introduced Christianity and also introduced peace between people who were killing each other. As the white man has retreated from these various places, the uh, wars have uh, reoccurred. Most of black Africa today is in the process of resuming with modern weapons wars that were interrupted when they were using spears and bows and arrows. Now, one of the uh, results of that has been massacres on a greater scale than one likes to discuss. And it brings up some very curious things about black Africa. We have Christian minister, uh, missionaries in black Africa who are not reporting to their home offices or to their congregations the massacres that they witness. They won't even write about it because they're afraid that their letters may be intercepted and read and would lead to their being expelled from their post and their mission closed down. So on the theory that it's better to stay and try to convert a few people than to expose evil in front of them, they are staying silent. Yes, that's one of the saddest uh, facts of the mission scene today. In the last century, if uh, reprisals were taken against a missionary, the home country could be depended upon, usually, to do something on its behalf. Now, uh, there is no real friendliness on the part of our State Department for missionaries who are going out. In fact, they, I think, would just assume they didn't. On top of that, they are threatened, in many cases, with expulsion if they will report the crimes. So, uh, they are silent about what they see. They will not talk about the things that are everyday occurrences. And as a result, they are involved in a serious moral compromise in many, many countries. The whole morality of the Western position regarding the rest of the world is now in a very gray area. We used to be very clear. We used to be very clear about the fact that to introduce Christianity to the rest of the world was to benefit the rest of the world. I recall that when Raffles went into Singapore uh, from the ship, they saw various dark objects bobbing in the water. They thought at first it was coconuts that turned out to be human heads because decapitation was a method of punishment in old China. And even when the uh, Europeans managed to establish certain beachheads for trading, for trading purposes in China, when the Chinese authorities were, dis were displeased with them, they would line up a bunch of the Chinese citizens and cut their heads off in front of the Europeans to make sure that they got the point that this was a very serious matter. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, we could go on. The human sacrifice, the uh, dreadful uh, customs, uh, the barbaric practices, the cannibals of the South Seas, the uh, sati, the burning of the widows in India, and all those dreadful practices that the white people interrupted and ended around the world are now no longer taught to school children. In, uh, in, a, in, in a very peculiar rewriting of history, we now have the situation where colonialism is considered to be the epitome of evil, the absolutely the worst terrible thing that ever happened. Well, the railroads, the roads, the bridges, the factories, the cities, uh, the whole 
paraphernalia of modern life was introduced from the West to the rest of the world. Black Africa is regressing, as we know. Medical uh, facilities are decaying. The doctors have fled. The nurses have been massacred and raped. The uh, spread of disease, including AIDS, uh, is beginning to uh, go from Africa to other parts of the world. South Africa is remarkable jewel in the midst of this picture. Here we have a very advanced technological uh, first-level civilization operated by uh, a minority of white people, managed, we might say, by a minority of white people and a large pool of black labor. The blacks in a period of only three generations have moved fantastically. There is absolutely nothing uh, to the argument that black people are less intelligent than any other race. That's not so. When we have black men, black young men, who were raised, one professor told me, without electric lights, who became superlative students of physics. It's a remarkable thing to watch. But we are running up into the... Uh, peculiar superstition of the 20th century in which people do not believe in the passage of time. They want to see miracles. Ponce de Leon and the Fountain of Youth is nothing compared to a modern student at Berkeley who wants to see the entire structure of South Africa transformed tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Yes, and since Rousseau there has been a myth that uh, Man, apart from civilization, is naturally good. And a man in civilization is corrupt and evil. As a result, you mentioned cannibalism. You actually have scholars who deny that cannibalism ever existed, that it was a myth created by missionaries and others. When the records are very clear how much there was and still is in some areas, and how many missionaries actually lost their lives to cannibals and were eaten. Now, let me add parenthetically, one of the things that uh, led to a diminution of eating missionaries and white men generally was that cannibals found their meat too salty. <laughs> white men eat a lot of uh, heavily salted foods, and that makes their meat... <laughs> A little difficult to take, but uh, you find people trying to deny, for example, that the Germanic peoples, the Saxons in particular, uh, uh, practiced human sacrifice and other abominations, that various of the northern European peoples had ritual homosexuality, and so on. They were primitive then, therefore they had to be naturally good, and uh, the blacks of... Uh, Africa, the natives of the, uh, the jungles of South America, everywhere where you have primitive men, by definition in our humanistic culture, they are good and civilized man is evil. So we clobber ourselves, we are the polluters of the world, and so on. I think I told you once of the episode that happened at a major university when I was asked to speak at the law school. I referred uh, to the changes in words and so on to illustrate a point with respect to legal history. And I said a farmer was once a tax collector and uh, the word cannibal was once terrible because the first encounter with cannibals on the part of European men was among the Indians of the Americans, the Carib Indians and the Caribbean first of all. Well, it created quite a sensation. In fact, I was canceled out at another law school immediately. What word of that got there? All through that week, there were problems faculty members objecting to my continuing to speak because I had spoken about the cannibalism of the Indians. 
And it was summed up by one faculty member who said, whether it's true or not makes no difference. Given the record of the white man, he has no right to speak about the sins of any other people. The faculty member who invited me had to leave uh, later, go to another school. Now, that's what we have as we approach South Africa and the situation there, this total lack of any reality. If I may say a little more, Otto, one of the things that strikes me as very ironic, I was, as you know, on an Indian reservation for eight and a half years. The great change in American Indian policies on the part of the federal government came in the 30s with the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who brought in John Collier. Prior to that, while very real mistakes were made by the Indian service, the goal was to Americanize the Indian, to absorb him into American culture. And despite the mistakes, this was taking place. But Collier said we must Indianize the Indian. And his concept of the reservation was exactly what South Africa has done with apartheid. The Indian must be the citizen of the tribe. This tribe must be an enclave unto itself, and so on. Apartheid was, I wonder, perhaps borrowed from the American Indian policy by the peoples of South Africa because we first instituted that policy and we're pursuing it unrelentingly today. We're increasingly trying to Indianize the Indian, but we won't allow South Africa to have their version of the same thing. Now, some will say, well, they insist that there can be no dual citizenship, and we were ready to allow that. But at present, they are working towards that. So we are very hypocritical in approving of the reservation system here and disapproving of a far more uh, independent apartheid in South Africa. It's a toss-up as to whether we got it from, uh, the South Africans got it from us, or whether we and the South Africans got it from the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, under Stalin, set up a nationalities division shortly after the Bolsheviks took over. And, of course, there are more minorities in the Soviet Union and more different languages than there are in any other single nation in the world. And there method of treating the minorities was to give each one its own territory. And Stalin, a Georgian, was in charge of this. So you had a territory for the Armenians, a territory for the Jews, a territory for every group. Uh, the Jews were the only ones that refused to live in their territory. The uh, others were transported and, to a large extent, uh, accepted what they couldn't resist. And the great, Ru the great Russians, as the Russians call themselves, remained the governing minority of the Soviet Union. Uh, if you look at the roster of the Soviet uh, parliament, you'll find that it's almost all great Russians. And certainly the... Uh, the head uh, offices of the Soviet Empire are occupied by white Russians, not by Tartars, not by Mongols, not by Armenians, so forth. They also instituted a system of passports in Russia in which every person born in any of these homelands, and I believe they call them homelands, I'm not sure has to declare at the age of 16 which nationality he's going to bear for life. If he's the product of a mixed marriage, he has to make his choice then. It is not just the Jews who have this nationality <coughs> on their passport, but everybody. Mm -hmm. The Jews have made an international issue of it because they say that it leads to discrimination or that it is discriminatory. But if it is discriminatory, 
It's a discrimination that applies to everybody across the board. Now, the system that was set up in South Africa resembles the Soviet. It has a certain resemblance to our reservations, too. But it resembles the Soviet with certain crucial differences. The Soviets still control all these different homelands. Even though Mr. Roosevelt allowed the Soviet Union to have three votes in the UN on the theory that the Ukraine and Belarus are separate countries. The fact is that they're not separate countries. They are governed by Soviet law. But the homelands that are being set up by South Africa are not governed by South African law, which is something that you never read about in the American newspapers. In each of these homelands, they have abolished all the South African rules of apartheid, all the South African restrictions on uh, intermarriage, etc., although the South African government itself has recently done that, and set up their own laws. So they are enclaves of black freedom in the midst of larger South Africa. Now, if you're going to have your own laws, if you're going to have the right to govern an area, then you have your own citizens. And the people who live there or belong there are no longer considered South African subjects. The South Africans are very logical in this. The Afrikaners have that strange Teutonic logic in which they begin with a point and they go trudge, trudge, trudge right through the whole structure. And I think that's a fascinating aspect. Mm -hmm. I think it is timely, in view of the fact that your book came out this month, that uh, a libertarian magazine based here in California, Reason, in its April 1985 issue, has an article by John Blundell, Siskai's Independent Way. Uh, uh, Siskai is one of these homelands for blacks in Africa of a particular tribe. And in Siskai, some dramatic things are taking place. It's becoming a libertarian paradise. Another uh, Hong Kong or Singapore with uh, a growing prosperity, with all kinds of uh, freedom and privileges, so it's quite a remarkable picture, and it's ironic that uh, South Africa is not particularly happy about it because South Africa is inclined to a controlled economy. So neither the Marxists nor the South Africans nor the Americans want to take it seriously. But it's a growing and uh, exciting thing. Well, there are other <clears throat> homelands that are doing other things. One of the homelands has set up a sin capital for Southern Africa with uh, porno films and gambling houses and all the things that go with that. And I remember asking one of the leading uh, South African Afrikaner politicians how that squared with the somewhat puritanical pattern of the Afrikaners. And he said, well, we don't like it. But he said, we gave them their independence, and we can't complain if they use their independence. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to read a few passages right from uh, Blundell's article. Let me quote here. There is a small black African country where new factories, uh, factory openings are so frequent, people are losing count of them. Where employment in some areas has more than quadrupled in the last four years where blacks are setting up small businesses in droves and soon will be able freely to own property for the first time in nearly a century, where urban blacks are becoming homeowners under a privatization of government housing plans, and where all manner of white man's laws inherited from neighboring South Africa, including the detested race laws, are being swept from the books. And... Uh, the article continues calling attention to the fact that uh, these people in Siskai refuse to believe the liberals that their 
forefathers lived communistically. They're insistent on having a free economy. And uh, they are moving increasingly for the wholesale deregulation of business, for the reform of land ownership to introduce security of tenure, eliminating taxes and permits, privatization of a large part of uh, present government assets and activities, and the establishment of Siskai as a tax haven to attract corporations from abroad. And it is doing that already. And uh, the corporate income tax is gone. Uh, so they're doing remarkable things. They are accused of denying civil liberties to dissenters, and supposedly all kinds of people are in jail because of their secret police. The author found that to be a ridiculous charge. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he says uh, that one English South African uh, declares, and I quote, as this guy was abolishing taxes and South Africa was increasing them, he, Parkin, predicted that within five years, neighboring South African towns would beg to become incorporated into Siskai. And uh, he found there even a former Californian, Don uh, Saul, who uh, was uh, working with Siskai's uh, small business corporation. And... Uh, he said he stopped between towns, and I quote, we stopped at Kambachi to visit Taylor Patrick Mabiko, whose payroll had soared from zero to 50 in under a year. But Mabiko was out hunting for more workers. His wife and brother showed me their small two-room factory, which was turning out 1,400 children's jogging suits a day for a U.S of stores, and black business, church, and other spokesmen were just as enthusiastic about the economic reforms. The article goes on to describe the fact that while he was there, Blundell never saw a police officer. So instead of being a police state, there was a minimum of police. And he said the charge that Siskai's dependent on South African subsidies is false. They receive a total of $12 million a year, which is next to nothing. So uh, the article is very, very interesting and a good uh, companion to your study in showing that... Uh, the kind of propaganda we get has no relationship to the reality of the situation. Now, for a reason, a libertarian magazine to give such excellent coverage, a 10-page, 12-page article to send a man there indicates that this guy is leading the world in developing a free market economy. In black Africa. In black Africa, <clears throat> within... South Africa, Within South Africa as a separate and an independent country and the South Africans because they like a somewhat controlled economy do not like this guy's independent way but they're doing nothing about it because they respect the freedom that is theirs well look at the ridiculous nature of the propaganda campaign here we have students in Berkeley and Columbia arguing for disinvestment and not for investment in Siskai to help the black people of Siskai. They don't want to promote freedom anywhere. They want to promote tyranny, Soviet style. They have a will to death. Well, the, uh, it's very difficult for me to understand how anyone could be bright enough to get into a top university and at the same time stupid enough 
not to understand that if the American businesses pull out of South Africa, that their places will be filled by Frenchmen, by Britishers, by West Germans, and by Italians, and by businessmen from other parts of the world. Not to speak of the fact that the Afrikaners themselves will gobble up at bargain prices all the business in South Africa that the Americans want to abandon, just as they did uh, take over at bargain prices all the businesses that the British abandoned in 1961. Uh, the American withdrawal from South Africa, in other words, is not going to fundamentally weaken South Africa, nor is it going to teach them anything. It's just simply going to say, well, if you don't do, it's something like a rich kid's argument. Uh, if you fellows don't elect me captain of the ball team, I'm going to take my bat and gloves and go home. I don't think it's a lack of intelligence. I think it's a lack of morality. These students, intellectuals, and media men are evil. They are unregenerate, ungodly men. They hate Christianity. Therefore, their moral perspective is warped. The current uh, Auto Club magazine has an article which is typical of many and perhaps a little more honest than most. It is about Red China. And the author visited there, and it's full of gush about the beauty, how marvelous it is, how wonderful the people are. These people go there, and they love it because they can look down on these people. And when they see the gap between themselves and these people living the way they do, they're happy. They, as the elite, can be on one level, and these people should be content to be backward and primitive. The author says that some of the hotels were excellent, American-built ones, and others were horrible. They smelled, they were crumbling, although they were new, the toilets didn't work or were rocky. They were in one hotel with a, 17, with a room on the 17th floor and no elevator working, <laughs> which serves these liberals right. <laughs> but... Uh, they are capable of uh, gushing over any kind of evil as long as they can remain the elite. Well, that's always been true to an extent. We've always had people here, and in England too, who enjoyed the experience of going to a third world country and feeling very rich feeling as though they really are members of the upper class. I remember that one of the worst aspects of the British Empire when it was in existence was the fact that middle-class English people would go overseas and pretend that they were members of the aristocracy. Now, the aristocracy didn't go overseas because things were too good at home for the aristocracy. Uh, the only ones that went overseas were those who were in charge of the whole shebang. But I ran into all kinds of snobby hotel managers and their wives and people of that sort who really thought the colonial world was wonderful because it gave them a chance to feel socially superior. And I've noticed, uh, I've noticed that in the Americans. I've noticed some Americans who went to the Orient and uh, American soldiers who were in Japan during the end of World War II who really felt that they were conquerors and uh, among an inferior race, and they just felt wonderful because of it. Mm -hmm. But one of the aspects of the South African and Western situation that's very intriguing to me is the fact that the present government, white government of South Africa, is a Christian government. Now, this is never mentioned but when you go there, the Christian nature of that government is inescapable. It's pervasive. Uh, the television opens with a prayer and it ends with a prayer. They teach Christianity in the schools. They have an, a considerable number of seminary graduates and ordained ministers in the uh, political party and in the government. It's astonishing. They have prime ministers who are ministers. 
and uh, it's very Calvinist in a sort of traditional Calvinist sense, uh, somewhat like traditional Catholicism, in the fact that many of the members of the Dutch Reformed Church are not theologically learned, but they're uh, obedient members of the congregation. Now, as Christians, there is a limit to what they will do to other people. They are uh, bound, so to speak, by a Christian morality, and they try to do their best. In many respects, they take what they consider to be the best way to go from the American pattern. They've gone into deficit spending, for instance, in order to uh, improve the standards, the living standards and educational standards of the blacks. They're building schools. They're uh, educating people. They're, they don't charge the blacks income taxes. And uh, the blacks get free education, free university education, and the doors are open. Now, this is turning their uh, system of economics down there into a semi-socialist situation, much like ours. We, we have this situation. We've not only gone into deficit spending for social progress here, but we've also extended our deficit by attempting to elevate the living standards of people around the world. Our so-called budget deficit wouldn't exist if it weren't for our foreign aid program. Mm -hmm. We would have a surplus if it weren't for that. Yes. You mentioned uh, the fact that uh, South Africa has gone in for deficit financing to help the blacks. Perhaps you ought to describe the kind of housing they provide for the black uh, peoples of South Africa. Well, of course, the largest black enclave is next to Johannesburg and in Soweto. Soweto, I went through, and I had the vision in my mind of galvanized huts and uh, pigs running through the streets and all that sort of thing. And incidentally, that sort of illustration is still being paraded around the United States. But that represents Soweto 40 to 50 years ago at a time when there were hardly any roads in South Africa anywhere for anybody. Today, the roads are paved, the homes range from modest to elaborate, and the rents are nominal, and their life tenure, 99-year tenure. The, uh, there are a number of black businesses in Soweto and a number of black millionaires. And uh, when I was there, there was a huge and hugely expensive electrification project underway in which they were putting in lights, telephones, and all the other amenities with which we are familiar. I think it's interesting that uh, when there was rioting there a while back, we were not told what the rioting was about. It was a protest, vaguely, we were told. And only in one or two periodicals did it come out that it was a protest because these subsidized housing areas where the blacks paid for air-conditioned brick homes, $20 a month, the rent was raised to $23.50. Yes, that's the sort of thing. So they're providing more generously for blacks there than we are for our welfare blacks here. Well, just take a look at uh, the lower Bronx. The, the bombed-out areas that uh, Jimmy Carter said were going to be taken care of, which are still there. Yes. Now, the, the question arises uh, in a practical sense on the business of one man, one vote. The one man, one vote was not part of the American Constitution. We had a representative government originally. The Supreme Court under Earl Warren devised the slogan, One Man, One Vote, and it's hard to think of anything more mischievous. If that were to be instituted in South Africa, you would have a situation where the votes of primitives would outweigh the votes of everyone else. And it would probably lead to a Rhodesian situation and to tribal warfare and to massacres. Israel has a similar dilemma regarding the Palestinians on the West Bank. There are several million of them. 
they've had to restrict their franchise. They're not without representation, but they don't have one man, one vote. The Israeli argument is that if they introduced one man, one vote, the Arabs, with their rising birth rate and great numbers, would soon outnumber the Israelis and would, in effect, vote the Jewish state out of existence. Therefore, they said, in order to maintain the Jewish state, they would not have one man, one vote. I have never read any campaigns against that position. So if you are for one man, one vote, you would have to apply it, of course, everywhere. If you yeah. don't apply it everywhere, then what is your argument? Yes, it's uh, a bit of hypocrisy. And it is malicious because it is aimed at destroying an outpost of Christian civilization, which has its faults like all do. But it's aimed at destroying an outpost and one we are particularly dependent upon. Would you like to comment upon our uh, dependence upon South African minerals and the like, as well, well as its strategic position? There, the overall position of the United States in the world, geopolitically speaking, or militarily speaking, is that we are a two-ocean power. We, are, uh, we began as a, as a maritime power, not a land power, because we already have all the land we want uh, after, getting the, after the War of 1848 and achieving a continental spread. This is all the land the United States really wants. We built the Panama Canal because we are a two-ocean power and because we need to transfer in a hurry from one ocean to the other by paying somebody to take the Panama Canal off our hands by putting it into the hands of communist Panama, we have set up a future obstacle for ourselves. At the time that was done, the argument was that we didn't have to worry militarily because we could always protect or maintain the Panama Canal from Nicaragua. Well, now, of course, we know where Nicaragua is. And we know that the American Congress is in the process of saying that Nicaragua is not strategic to our military needs, which is a very strange position indeed. The uh, Falcon Islands, on the other hand, guard the uh, cape at the bottom of Patagonia. If Russia were to allow the, or were to assist the Argentines to take the Falkland Islands away from Britain, then the Soviets could maintain a control of both the Panama Canal and Patagonia, which would mean that we wouldn't be able to reach the Pacific Ocean excepting by overland routes. We don't have the freight trains, we don't have the railroad cars to do what we were able to do in the past, to transport all that needs to be transported between the coasts. Then we move over to uh, Suez, which, of course, is very vulnerable to uh, being closed. It was closed twice since World War II to the West. And if Suez is closed again, all shipments would have to be around the Cape of Good Hope, which is off South Africa. If South Africa were in communist control, that route to the Orient could be changed. The route from the Middle East to Europe could be interdicted which would mean that an oil embargo could be maintained, which would first starve Europe from oil from the Middle East and second starve the United States from oil from Venezuela because control of the Caribbean is like control of the Middle East. It controls the two oil pools upon which the West relies. Since the Soviets have an enormous submarine fleet and a surface fleet and have a base in Cuba and a base in Nicaragua, uh, a growing base in Guyana, and since they are already in Afghanistan, which is on the northern borders of Iran, and they are in Libya, and they have there the largest, the largest air base in the Middle East, which we built and which they took away from us, Militarily speaking, they have a knife at our throat, and South Africa is very crucial in this.
on the business of maintaining a war, a defensive war, we rely upon South African mineral alloys for uh, the construction of practically every crucial thing that we do, computers, jets, uh, military material and weapons of the most basic sort. We would, when the Japanese attacked, they had two targets. Their primary target was the British Navy. Secondary target was the American Pacific Fleet. The purpose of those attacks was to take the rubber-bearing lands of Southeast Asia because the Japanese military had studied World War I and had discerned that the German transported stalled, and that was the reason the Germans had to surrender. They had to surrender because stalled transport, they could no longer move, and they couldn't move because they ran out of rubber. The Japanese reasoned that if they had all the natural rubber lands of the southeast, the United States could not fight because it took in those days a ton of rubber to make a B-12. It took rubber to make radios. It took rubber to make telephones. It took rubber to move an automobile and so forth. They misjudged because they were unaware or unappreciative of the enormous industrial capability of the United States at that time. And a synthetic rubber program was cranked up, which saved us from the Japanese success. Now, at that time, the synthetic rubber program succeeded because Washington said it didn't know what to do and asked American business to do whatever it could, and it suspended the antitrust laws so that there was an industrial pool of technology and patents and everything else in order to do that. Now, after the war, the uh, Senator O'Mahony of, of Montana had a study made and an assessment made of that program, and the professor from Cornell put it together, said we should never again allow American businessmen that much authority. If we have to do it again, we must see to it that the government itself has the experts and instructs business on what to do which argues that we would never be able to reproduce a synthetic rubber program or a program similar to that. However, synthetic rubber was a chemical process, a chemical and oil process. There is no process that can create the metals that we have to have from South Africa. It simply cannot be done. So if we are cut off from oil <clears throat> and if we are cut off from the minerals, we must surrender. The campaign against South Africa is a campaign that only one nation can win, and that is the, United, the Union of, so of Soviet Republics. The USSR is the beneficiary of the demonstrations at Berkeley, at Columbia, at the editorials of the New York Times, of the, the indignation of Dan Rather, and all the other saints that we have among us. Yes, very, very true. Uh, we have just a couple of minutes left, Otto. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone that this book, Otto Scott's The Other End of the Lifeboat, is available for eighteen ninety-five, and you can order it from Ross House Books, P.O. Box 67, Vallecito, V as in Victor, A-L-L-E, CITO, California, 95251. We're very grateful, Otto, that uh, you've taken this time and that you have done the travel and studying that went into this book, because I know that two years ago you spent a great deal of the year in South Africa on two separate trips. Is there any final uh, statement you'd like to make? You have about a minute or a minute and a half. Well, at least half of the book, the latter half of the book, is devoted to what my wife and I saw while we were there and the people we talked to. I think that Americans, and especially Christian Americans, will find a remarkable similarity between the, the South Africans and ourselves. And I, I 
do hope that they will take a look at what I wrote because I tried very hard not to turn this into a encyclopedia, a dry as dust thing. It's a very human. Uh, it's a book aimed as much at Americans as it is at South Africans. Oh. Well, let me add a final word. This is a book that uh, a great many, many people did not want published. And uh, that story is quite an interesting one, which someday in the distant future might well be told. But for the present, we do urge you to read this book. And we'll look forward to hearing from you. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.